another episode of Gladio for Europe. I'm Russian Sam, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts, Liam. Hey! And hello, Sam. Hello. And we are recording this on the eve of what is now Italian Heritage slash Indigenous Peoples Day, formerly known as Columbus Day. So we thought that it would be fun to talk about uh, the history of this holiday as well as the history of Italians in this country, because there's a large proliferation of jokes about Italians on the internet. You've probably seen it for a very long time. A lot of that material is very stale. But what is the actual Italian-American story? I think the best place to start this story is not in 1492. I think it's in 1891. Specifically, March 14th, 1891. In New Orleans, Louisiana. A group of 8,000 assembled on New Orleans Canal Street, almost filling up the large space from curb to curb on either side of the boulevard. The crowd, possessed by an ungovernable fury at the murder of police chief Hennessy, had guns and arrived at the parish prison at 10.30 that night. Prison guards let the mob inside, where they eventually found the Italian prisoners accused of the murder of the police chief. They brought the prisoners out into the street, and the shotguns belched forth. The slayers of Hennessy fell dead in their tracks. This was the scene of the 1891 New Orleans lynching, where 11 Italian immigrants would be shot or hanged for their alleged participation in the assassination of a cop. This event is generally considered the largest mass lynching in the U.S. history. And interestingly, it was a mass lynching of Italian immigrants. This caused an immediate crisis internationally, where the U.S. and the Italian governments came to pretty high tensions over the murder, and it led to an immediate crisis in American race relations. Not race relations between white people and black people, but race relations between Anglo-Americans and these large numbers of newcoming Italians, who were seen as completely alien to the society they were trying to make their home. And this event also led to the creation and the celebration of what's probably the most controversial holiday in the United States. Columbus Day. Tonight, we'll be looking at the history of Columbus Day and its connection to Italian-American politics in the 20th century. Yeah, and uh, before we get too deep, I think we should mention that uh, we have a few sources for this. Halal Sam read a book called WAP. I read the book WAP by Salvatore Lacomina, which is this collection of newspaper clippings and magazine clippings, essentially, and speeches talking about Italians and the Italian problem and the Italian-American experience of Italian-American history. And I know that Russian Sam, you found these two pretty cool movies that uh, do a pretty good job of illustrating the history of Italian immigration from the late 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. Namely, the 2006 film Nuovo Mondo, also known by the English name The Golden Door as well as the 1996 film, Big Night. And th this is a great contrast, because we'll get into the movies later, but they show really the two very different types of Italian-Americans from the beginning of the diaspora and then to after World War II, how you really just see this complete transformation in this population as they basically become American. And become white. Yes. Yeah, so tonight we're centering uh, Italian voices. Although none of us are Italian. <laughs> no, but two of us are from New York, which I think means New York and Jersey, so we kind of count. I think we should mention, though, that because this is Columbus Day, we should begin this story with the figure of Columbus himself. So uh, in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 
uh, wasn't that clean. It wasn't very nice. You guys probably know the general outline of this already. Christopher Columbus was a Genoese sailor and merchant who eventually made his way to the Portuguese and later the Spanish court, where he was able to secure the backing of the Spanish crown to fund his expedition to Asia. And so he thought Asia was a lot closer than it really was. He thought that it would be much easier to sail across the Atlantic and get to China or India. Uh, a very common myth that you'll hear about this is that uh, everyone thought the world was flat except for Columbus, and that's why they didn't support him. But in reality, it was because they actually knew what they were talking about, and they told him that he was he was going to die of hunger because he'd run out of provisions before he actually got to Asia. Yeah, especially the Portuguese who had built who were building this maritime empire and had very very good maps of the, of sea routes. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think we should mention that uh, it probably would have been better for a lot of people if Columbus actually did die of a lack of provisions on his way there. Oh, absolutely. It would have stopped the largest genocide in human history. What does Columbus say in his own words? They brought us parrots and balls of cotton and spears and many other things, which they exchanged for the glass beads and hawks' bells. They willingly traded everything they owned. They were well built, with good bodies and handsome features. They do not bear arms, and do not know them. For I showed them a sword, and they took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They have no iron. Their spears are made of cane. They would make fine servants. With fifty men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. Yeah, so in 1492, Columbus uh, set sail, uh, and he arrived on the island which he would call Hispaniola, which is today where Haiti and the Dominican Republic are. So here he's talking about the Taino population that was at that time living on the island. Yeah, who are no longer living on the island because they were mercilessly exterminated and enslaved. I think we should add that, although there is a little bit of debate about whether or not Columbus was deliberately trying to destroy this entire nation— it's inarguable that his actions are the biggest contributing factor in the eventual genocide of the Taino people and so many other indigenous peoples uh, across the entire Americas, as well as the beginnings of the American slave trade. Yeah, and you'll often hear the refrain that, oh, it was a different time, they had different standards, but it, but it should be underlined that even by the standards of the day, Columbus was seen as a pretty vicious guy. Yeah, there were like there were Catholic priests and others and a lot of people who Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it, you, you find that great example, Russian Sam, of how um, he was brutal, not even just to indigenous people. Um, as I said, Columbus was from Genoa, and he was actually from a commoner background, basically working class, and he was very embarrassed uh, by that. This resulted in this sort of inferiority complex to the point where when some woman in, in Hispaniolo was talking about his ancestry, his brother basically ordered that her tongue be cut out for uh, bad-mouthing the family. And, and I have to assume that if he was this openly brutal with a European woman, presumably non-Christian indigenous people would have been treated with even more wanton casual violence. To quote from the letter that he wrote to his brother upon hearing this, what you have done is good, for whoever speaks ill of us deserves death, and this is the law. It should also be noted that, um, obviously, he wasn't Spanish himself, but the Spaniards uh, had just engaged in the uh, the Reconquista, supposedly, I don't like that term, but whatever, had just done a lot of pillaging and uh, conquering in Iberia itself. Yeah, the same year, yes, we shouldn't get the same year that Columbus arrived in Hispaniola was when so many Jewish and Muslim people from southern Spain were forced to convert or leave the country. Uh, I think it's just really important to, to say all that here because this whole episode we're going to be talking about Columbus and his legacy, 
um, as this great cultural figure. I think we do need to mention early on that no matter if you think he was this great hero of the Italian nation or what, he was a really brutal guy, and there's no way around that. And that even people who defend or uphold the legacy of Columbus should recognize that he was responsible for a lot of brutality, both personally and in his lasting legacy. The other fascinating thing about him as a representative of the Italian nation is that no such thing existed at that point. He didn't go to the to the Italian court in Rome because it didn't exist. No, he went to Spain. How, although interestingly, he wasn't alone in that, is that in that a lot of people from modern day Italy did participate as early explorers. Yes. You had uh, Giovanni da Verzano, you had John Cabot. Like, the list goes on and on. Like, Italians were very active in this effort. Although these early explorers sailed under the flags of Atlantic monarchies, they were the standard bearers of a general movement of ideas and finances that really stemmed from Italy. The Italian networks and financial backing that were crucial for these Italian navigators provided the additional element that made these first voyages possible. In the early expeditions, the Italian sea captains and their investors cared about profits, not sovereignty, which was an approach the Genoese and Venetians had pioneered in the Mediterranean. The Atlantic monarchs, on the other hand, found it gratifying to extend their sovereignty, both for its own sake and because it would become the basis on which they shared in any profit. One way of looking at what happened in the years before and after 1492 is to see it as an attempted commercial conquest of the Atlantic by several groups of Italian venture capitalists. In the end, the Atlantic world proved too large and too risky and too distant for the Italian commercial networks to really dominate it. So in this way, people from what would eventually become Italy were able to make their contribution in the settlement of the New World and the raising of the indigenous societies that already existed there. And one of the first Italian-Americans to settle in what would later become the United States of America and to take part in this project was a guy named Pietro Cesare Alberti, who lived from 1608 to 1655. He's often been called, quote-unquote, the first Italian-American. And he was a Venetian sailor who had immigrated to what was then New Amsterdam, what's today New York, in 1635. He had an estate in, in what's today Brooklyn. Somehow Brooklyn was already calling. Uh, he was killed by a Native American. Owned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we should note, though, that even though there was a little bit of a limited Italian settlement in the New World in the colonial era, you didn't really see much interest in the figure of Columbus at this time. However, after independence... And during the Revolutionary War, there was a sudden crisis of identity where the U.S. needed new national symbols to look for for this new nation. A really obvious symbol was Columbus. And quite interestingly, the figure of Columbus as this sort of beacon of civilization in a new land first found its major form in the idea of Columbia, this feminine goddess figure. What I find especially interesting about Columbia, this, you know, this female goddess figure that represents America, comparable to Britannia and the UK or Marianne in France, was actually created by an African-American woman, uh, Phyllis Wheatley, who some of you guys might know from AP US history. She was the first African-American person to publish a book in the US. And in 1776, she actually wrote this sort of vaguely pro-independence poem that featured Columbia as this feminine figure. And then shortly after independence, there's this sudden push of Columbia and Columbus being adopted as names. So, uh, for instance, Columbia University, 1784, used to be just called King's College. But after the revolution and independence, you didn't really want to go to someplace called King's College anymore. 
So now you go to Columbia. In 1786, Columbia, South Carolina was established as the new capital. And then, of course, in 1791, a little bit after this, you have the District of Columbia is established. My favorite fact about D.C. is that it's shaped the way it is because that part of Virginia that is should be part of D.C. wanted to keep their slaves. Oh, of course. I, I didn't realize that, but of course. Yeah, no, that's why D.C. isn't a perfect square. Anyways. And interestingly, in 1792, you also have one event, which was the very first celebration of Columbus's landing. And I'm not really sure if we can call this Columbus Day because it wasn't a holiday and it wasn't celebrated as such. But you have the Tammany Society of New York recognizing that the landing itself by Columbus on October 12th was an important event that should be celebrated. And this was in 1792, which was the tricentennial of his landing. So yeah, that's you see that in the, the late 18th century, going on to the early 19th century, you have all of these places being called Columbus or Columbia formed in a very short time. There's this brief period where there's a lot of national interest in the figure of Columbus. We should note, though, that this interest isn't coming from Italian Americans, of which there were very few. This was coming from Anglo-Americans who were simply looking for a new symbol to augment their new civil religion. Yeah, you also get Columbus, Ohio, the Columbia River in the Pacific Northwest, British Columbia. And I guess from the Columbia River, yeah, yeah, you get British Columbia from that, yeah. Yeah, yeah but despite the fact that there were so few Italians present in the United States at this moment, this, this does not mean that some of them did not play an important role. This is true. So the most prominent example of an Italian who participated in the Revolutionary War was a man named Filippo Mazze. He came to Virginia in 1773 and became good friends with Jefferson. He became a massive proponent of republicanism and a financier and propagandist for the American Revolution in Europe, especially in Italy. He was actually elected to a local council in Virginia, which he served for a little while. Uh, but after the conclusion of the Revolutionary War, he went to serve in the Royal Court of Poland until the partition happened. Oh, that's interesting. You know, you also had a guy named William Paca, who was a, an English merchant of distant Italian ancestry, who was actually one of the signers of the Declaration. But how many Italian Americans were there at this point exactly? One cannot estimate with certainty the number of Italians residing in the United States either in 1800, when the country extended to the Mississippi River with an entire population of 5.3 million, or in 1850, when it reached the Pacific Ocean with a population of 23 million. Figures ranging from 3,000 to 12,000 Italians have been suggested. The United States did not track immigration until 1820, and only 30 Italians were recorded as arriving in that year. In the decade 1841 to 1850, an average of 187 Italians entered annually, which was just 11% of the total number, a far cry from its 23.26% during the heyday of Italian immigration 50 years later. In 1850, there were 3,679 Italian-born immigrants, not including offspring born in America, second-generation Italian-Americans, or Italians who arrived before 1820 and were living in 1850. So, in other words, there were not a ton of Italian-Americans at this time. No, this was a small population. There were about as many Italians back then as there were, like... Albanians, probably. Exactly, yeah. Although there probably would have been some Italian-Albanians, actually. That's true, the ratio, yeah, yeah. They are, they are a thing. So in other words, uh, if you're asking how many Italian-Americans there were in the early 19th century, the answer is not that many. You really wouldn't see that many Italian-Americans coming to the U.S. until during and after the Civil War. But this wasn't because of a civil war in America, but because of what was happening in Italy, which was the long-lasting civil conflicts known as the Risorgimento, in other words, the northern-led movement for unification. Yes, the, the birth of the Italian state as we know it today. 
the idea of a state that goes, you know, from the Alps to the tip of the boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably the most important figure in this was Garibaldi. Very, very accomplished, fascinating figure. And uh, this led to a whole whole lot of economic and social crises that pushed a lot of people, especially on the more elite end of the spectrum, but also a lot of poorer people, to leave the country. Uh, What I find kind of interesting is that a lot of these early Italian immigrants during the war actually came to the U.S. as soldiers to fight. And you even had Italian immigrants fighting on both sides of the American Civil War. Yeah, and Garibaldi himself was offered a generalship in the Union Army, but refused it because he was angry that the Union was not fighting to abolish slavery at that point. Although he did have some service in the New World. He did have some military history there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Garibaldi, really, def- definitely a really cool guy. Well, I think, I'm thinking if we want a holiday for a famous Italian person in the New World... Personally, I think Garibaldi is a much, much better pick than Columbus. Absolutely. Incredibly cool guy. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the way that uh, the Garibaldi's conflict sort of bled into the American Civil War? So uh, due to uh, some international liberal support for the Union and Garibaldi's own anti-slavery stance, because he was a good person, many Italian veterans of the Unification Wars uh, emigrated to the U.S. and joined the Union Army. And maybe out of revenge against their uh, Garibaldian enemies, several dozen Neapolitan veterans of the Italian War who had opposed unification sailed to New New Orleans to fight for the Confederacy. And I think that's really funny because this means you have the northern Italians fighting for the North in the Civil War, and you have the Southern Italians fighting for the South. It's incredibly funny. Yeah, and New Orleans, as we will get into later, is a historically important city for the Italian-American community. Yes, New Orleans was always a major Italian settlement center. The French Quarter specifically, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And this is when Italian settlement really took off. It was after the Civil War, you start seeing large numbers of Italians, now poorer Italians especially, coming to places like New York and Boston and Philadelphia, but in smaller numbers to places like the West and including New Orleans, which was sort of considered a Western city just because it was so far from the Northeast. And you mentioned that a lot of Italians moved to the French Quarter. That's really interesting to me because in the West, especially in San Francisco and Los Angeles, where they had these existing older Mexican communities, you had Italian immigrants who didn't assimilate into Anglo-American society, but instead they actually basically got folded into the Mexican community in those places. Call that Latin solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> what, were, uh, what were some of the reasons besides political instability and, you know, wartime violence that caused people to flee? Okay, so agric- the price of agricultural goods collapsed after the end of the Civil War, and the population of the South had exploded. The North-South divide got even worse. Uh, this is in Italy, by the way with the North industrializing and the South remaining agrarian and really almost quasi-feudal. Yeah, so again, maybe it's not entirely a coincidence that like the Southerners from Italy joined the American South, because these are places that were both had a very brutal system of agriculture in kind of a similar way. Although, of course, as brutal as agriculture was in Italy, it, in Southern Italy, it was nowhere near as bad as slavery, but it was still this kind of tradition of bonded labor, often enforced by violence. Yeah, I mean, Bella Ciao was originally a song sung by farmers in the South, I believe. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, the famous anti-fascist song, yeah. Before it was a partisan song, yes. I know one thing that you discovered, Russian Sam, was that a big push factor for immigration was that even though the, sta- the South of Italy was incredibly poor, the population was expanding really rapidly. So you had all these very poor rural people, especially in places like Sicily. 
Oh yeah, for sure. And at the same time, you were also seeing a massive expansion of the North-South divide in terms of economics. Like the price of agricultural goods basically collapsed after the American Civil War because you once again had a massive influx of, of these grains into the market, as well as the expansion of, of railroads, which allowed goods to reach markets uh, in a more timely manner. And as a consequence, you saw a situation go from in 1860, the GDP per capita of the southern regions of Italy was 99% that of the more industrial north. So so basically, you're saying it was on par at this time with the north. The south was just as wealthy as the north. And then by 1895, it's down to 91%. And it just keeps declining until 1945, it bottoms out at 49%. At, at the end of World War II, they've sunk to basically half the wealth of the north of Italy. And from the very beginning, you had these very unpleasant feelings, which were often mutual uh, in both the North and the South, which ironically enough, from the fact that during the period of Risorgimento, uh, many Southern intellectuals were writing about how the monarchy had actually uh, degraded Southern Italian population and made them uncivilized and superstitious and violent. And ultimately, once the monarchy was out of the picture, this image of the Southern Italian still remained. My mom grew up uh, in a pretty Italian neighborhood in Yonkers, and most of her neighbors were, I mean, you still had monolingual Italian speakers uh, among like the Greek grandparents and stuff, because you had multi-generational housing. But some of the more northern, but not really northern Italian kids would say of Sicilians, this is how they would explain Sicilians, a piece of Africa broke off. Which is both racist against black people and against Sicilians, and, and that and that's that's racism within Ital within Italy within that that's wild, yeah, yeah, no, and this was in this was in the sixties. Yeah, well, here's the, that great quote about what it was like in uh, the Kingdom of Naples prior to unification. The traveler who happens in that kingdom finds no signs of a civilized people, no institution that is useful and productive, no public or private instruction, no roads, not even any links among provinces or between the capital and the provinces. There is no traffic, no commerce, no arts, no industry, no manufacturing. And if we're not for the thousands of monks and priests, crooks and vagabonds, beggars and do-nothings, if it were for the serenity and clarity of the sky, the fertility of the soil, this traveler would think that he was in one of the countries of Africa, made bestial by the most degrading despotism. It's really, yeah, it's uh, it's intense stuff. <laughs> really nasty stuff, yeah. And it's, it's funny, yet. so here it is in the 1860s and in the 1960s, you've got this racist association of the southern Italy, of southern Italy with, with Africa. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And, you know, uh, Gramsci, who I'm sure a lot of our listeners are quite familiar with, he actually had this <laughs> quite interesting comment about the perception of Southern Italy. It is well known what kind of ideology has been disseminated in myriad ways among the masses in the North by the propagandists of the bourgeoisie. The South is the ball and chain which prevents the social development of Italy from progressing more rapidly. The Southerners are biologically inferior beings, semi-barbarians or total barbarians, by a natural destiny. If the South is backward, the fault does not lie with the capitalist system or with any other historical cause, but with nature, which has made the Southerners lazy, incapable, criminal, and barbaric. Uh, this is his description of what the propagandist of the bourgeoisie, as he would say correctly, what he says that they believe is basically identical to what Lega Nord and uh, other people in the north of Italy who are violently racist against the South would say today. So you're saying, yeah, like modern day, yeah, modern day Italian racists. Yeah, like this is... 
although Lega Nord obviously has expanded throughout Italy, beyond the north, etc., etc., it began as a northern separatist party because of this attitude of they are keeping us back. They are the ball and chain which prevents the development of Italy. Right. And of course, these kinds of beliefs held by northern Italians against the south would basically be adopted by Americans upon Italian immigration. And I think that this is a perfect place to introduce one of the movies that we saw for this episode, which is Nuovo Mondo or Golden Door, which is this really funny, almost magical exploration of what it was like for incredibly parochial rural Sicilians moving to America. And it just shows that these people, they just lived in a completely different world than the one they were about to enter. So the movie takes place in 1904 in Sicily, and and the central characters are the Mancuso family, who are these poor Sicilian peasants who decide that it it's time for them to pack up and move to America. Right, and these people have no idea about the outside world at all. Probably uh, the most interesting scenes of the movie are where the main character imagines what life in America is going to be. And he thinks it's people with giant vegetables wading through seas of milk. Because that's how, that's how luxurious life is in America. There's even one funny early scene right at the beginning where these two young women have a photo of what they believe life in America is like. And it's these uh, edited photos of onions so big that a wheelbarrow is needed to carry just one. And these people are so parochial that they really believe that's what's waiting for them. And also their situation at home is so shitty. Yeah, yeah. It's overall an excellent movie. It does a great job of capturing the atmosphere of the time. And it just looks great. Like there are a number of very visually striking scenes. Uh, There's one scene where the boat full of immigrants is leaving the harbor to depart to America. And you just see this chasm form between the boat and the people who are waving goodbye to them. It's really ominous, honestly. Yeah, it's it's very like there's a... Because these people are, pro- are, many of them are never going to return home again. Although I guess, as you noted, uh, Russian Sam, in your research, a lot of Italian Americans did at least intend to go back after working for a few years. Yeah, something like half of Italian immigrants would uh, return to Italy after working for a couple of years in America or in another more developed European country. Their calculus was basically, I'm going to go to America or France or whatever, work for a couple of years, then I'm going to come back home to my village, I'm going to buy a nice plot of land, build myself a, a nice mansion, and then retire and live happily ever after. And also, uh, talk about how this strength, uh, what this did to the Italian identity. So to a large extent, Italian identity was actually formed outside of Italy because when these people would go abroad, they suddenly found out that they're, you know, um, Italians. Uh, there's actually this great scene um, in the ship where they're getting settled down and one guy notes that he had never slept with so many foreigners before. And Salvatore tells him, foreigners, but we're not foreigners, we're all Italian. Italian? Italian. But we don't speak the same way. Don't you know you're Italian? If you say so. Exactly. Like, at, once they're in America, they're no longer, you know, you're no longer Sicilians or Tuscans or whatever. You're Italians. Often it was just village identity. Like, keep in mind that unification only happened in 1871. This was a very new country, as well as the fact that the state of education was very poor, especially in the South. The best most people could hope for was going to church school for a couple of months in the winter while they weren't uh, working the land. Right, yeah, because people would often uh, settle among other people from the same province or even the same village. Like, where your ancestors came from in Italy remained an important aspect of Italian-American life in the early 20th century. Absolutely. 
but and we, but we have these mixing together in these little in, in like the little Italy's of all these American cities, kind of like we see with Chinatowns. And I actually read an interview with Martin Scorsese. Uh, his parents were born here, but basically, like he talks about how his parents had basically grown up on adjacent blocks. Like his father's family lived in one building where people from Village X settled. And then his mother settled in a building literally down the block where people from her village village settled. And like, these were very insular people to the point where like people from building X marrying people from building Y would be seen as a big deal, basically. And of course, uh, these immigrants, when they came, because they had very low education and they didn't often have employable skills, they tended to have blue collar work and often worked very poor wages, probably lower wages than most native-born Americans were comfortable working. Absolutely. Probably as a result of the extreme poverty of Italians, both in Italy and in America, there was this flowering of radical intellectual thought on both sides of the Atlantic, where you have a whole bunch of Italian-Americans adopting anarchist and socialist beliefs, and then you also have many people in Italy and Sicily learning these beliefs and coming to America as professed socialists. This was part of this broader backlash against Italian-American immigration out of the specific fear that Italians were not only uh, racially inferior or whatever, they were also bringing these far-left ideologies which could threaten to turn America into a socialist country. All right, and uh, here we have a political cartoon from the late 19th century. Imagine if Ben Garrison was about 20% more racist or 10% more racist, but it was about Italians. You have rats with human faces and they're dark skinned and mustachioed and swarthy. And they're all swimming toward American shores. They're, they're coming out of a box labeled direct from the slums of Europe daily. And you have all of these Italian rats, some of them with knives in their mouth, swimming to America, and they were all wearing hats that say mafia, radicalism, socialism. Anarchism. Yeah, the, the only comparison I can think of even better than Ben Garrison is if anybody has played Bioshock Infinite, the, uh, the kind of like over-the-top racist art in that game is really not remotely off the mark of what was actually being produced in the early 20th century. It, it's really clear that uh, Italians at this time were genuinely the victims of extreme racial prejudice. There's a lot of talk about whether or not Italians were considered white at this time. I think that honestly, that's almost beside the point. Because whether or not they were explicitly considered white or non-white, there was incredible racial prejudice against Italians, and they were absolutely seen as less than white people, um, both racially and socially. And there's and there were clear material causes of this, like the fact that they would work for really, really low wages. Yeah. And also, they were almost uniformly Catholic, which led to um, a lot of anxieties among the still very Protestant American public. Yeah. Uh, this time was teeming with conspiracy theories about papist conspiracy for Catholics to swamp the United States and, and bring it under the domain of the Pope. Absolutely. And I think this was a big factor in why Italians experienced a lot more prejudice than Protestant immigrants from Germany and Scandinavia. But interestingly, um, it also seems like that by the late 19th century, when Italian immigration really picked up, they were also being unfavorably com compared to other immigrants from Catholic countries. Let let's hear this one quote from the New Orleans Times Democrat, because this is a pretty interesting examination of uh, 
popular prejudices against Italians. Yeah. Uh, the Germans, the Irish, and others migrate to this country, adopt its customs, acquire its language, master its institutions, and identify themselves with its destiny. The Italians never. They remain isolated from the rest of any community in which they happen to dwell. They seldom learn to speak our tongue, and they have no respect for our laws or our form of government. They are always foreigners. This is from the uh, New Orleans Times Democrat in October 1890. Yeah. This is very, very recently after a lot of people were very afraid of Irish immigrants and uh, Italian immigrants. But there's another quote. Um, they are, scarce, with scarcely an exception, Roman Catholics, but they do not feel at home in our Roman Catholic churches for the reason that the priests are either Irishmen or Germans. The Protestant denominations make very little, if any, effort to proselytize to these people, since the language bar- the barrier of language is almost insurmountable. Wow, yeah. I, I, I think it's pretty true that uh, Italians really seem to have received more prejudice than other European Christians at this time. Yeah, it's very interesting to me that they mention our Roman Catholic churches, which is, would be an unthinkable thing to say even a few decades earlier. No, because just because this this was in the in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. Yeah, this is eighteen eighty four in the New York Times. Yeah, yeah, and so fifty years before that, Irish and German Catholics were seen as you know like the scourge of America. And speaking of the New York Times, there's an especially nice quote right here that you found. It should be said, however. To the credit of the Italian race, that these peasants, low as they are, are not often found in our prisons for crimes of theft and robbery. They seem on the whole an honest class, but are continually brought before the courts for fighting, for violence, and for attempts at murder. Crimes which arise from the crowded way in which they live, and the jealousies and the quarrels that naturally arise from their promiscuous mode of life. Their children, as they grow up, will naturally and inevitably form the criminal class of New York City, unless they are reached by only the best American influences. Yeah, this is in 1882. Yeah, it's the great lady, you know, always uh, that lovely newspaper is, uh, you know, just describing how the, the Italian is naturally inferior unless he's, you know, taught by the superior American way of life. And is just has, has the crime gene. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and actually, we have one more that's even possibly the worst of all. Oh, yeah, let's go. Steerage passengers from a Naples boat show a distressing frequency of low foreheads, open mouths, weak chins, poor features, skew faces, or small or knobby crania. Such people lack the power to take rational care of themselves. Hence their death rate in New York is twice the general death rate and thrice that of the Germans. No other immigrants from Europe, unless it be the Portuguese or the half-African bravas of the Azores, show so low an earning power as the Southern Italians. They specify Southern Italians, which is interesting. Yeah, and you're also seeing at this time the collision of Italian immigration with the new turn towards scientific racism. So in a way, Italians were coming at the worst time because this was a time when white Americans were increasingly interested in stuff like skull shapes, you know, and even like uh, whatever physical differences they could find between themselves and immigrants. And they didn't even have to do this work. Uh, the race scientists of Northern Italy had already done their job for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that a, a cool example of this, which isn't entirely racial, but it's very eugenic, is how at the end of the movie Nuovo Mondo, after this Italian family has worked so hard to get to the U.S., they're told that um, the elderly mother and the mute son are not allowed to come in because they're seen as uh, potential you know, pollutants in the American population. Oh, yeah. There's this uh, great quote where one of the administrators on Ellis Island is explaining to a woman asking questions about what the purpose of the test is. And he says, 
It has been scientifically proven that a lack of intelligence is genetically inherited, hence contagious in a way. We are trying to prevent below-average people from mixing with our citizens. And yeah, that's all there is to it. It was a very cruel enforcement regime, which just treated these people like animals. Like, we see a scene where they're being examined, like they're naked, and there are people walking around them to check for deformities or illnesses. Yeah, just really awful dehumanizing stuff. You know, and of course, uh, I know we're not really a political podcast, but we probably should mention that this is somewhat reminiscent of what still goes on in immigration facilities. It's just an incredibly brutal tradition. Absolutely. I I think the bottom line here is that it's clear that Italian Americans felt incredibly unwanted by their new country. They were experiencing really high levels of of opposition and even violence in a lot of places we're going to get into. And starting from pretty soon after the end of the Civil War, there was this push among Italian communities across the U.S. to prove themselves as Americans. And one way a lot of Italian Americans thought to do this was by connecting themselves as these 19th century Italian residents to earlier Italian residents in the Americas. And the obvious example was Christopher Columbus. Um, In 1866, Italians in New York lobbied for the recognition of Columbus Day as a holiday. Yeah, this was when New York probably had one of the only Italian communities in the country. Greatest city in the fucking world, baby. Yeah, and these were for the most part educated political exile types and not the quote-unquote ignorant country peasant. So it was a very different uh, demographic, but nevertheless, they felt the need to uh, create a space for themselves as part of the American nation. And they were followed by the Italians of San Francisco who held in a Columbus Day Parade in 1868. Yeah, yeah. One kind of funny quote I like is that there was one Italian activist named Angela Noce who uh, led the campaign for Columbus Day in Denver. And he said that he first recognized that Columbus was a good figure because he was creating a a tavern and he wanted to name the tavern after an important Italian. And he said, uh, he finally decided to call it Christopher Columbus Hall, realizing that Columbus was the only Italian that Americans wouldn't throw rocks at. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it's, there is a genuine environment of discrimination here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is why Columbus Day is a really touchy subject because even though Italian Americans today, thankfully don't experience really any discrimination no they're they're white now modern italian americans are totally assimilated into the fold of whiteness and you know that has a lot of that carries a lot of very unfortunate baggage the ashkenazi jews are another example yeah no absolutely yeah yeah so many groups had this process yeah yeah jews are another great example um but before italians were really incorporated into the fold i don't think you could really fault them for latching onto columbus even though columbus was a pretty awful person it would have been nice if they pushed for Garibaldi Day or something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that would have certainly been a better outcome. Generally cool guy. Also, another one of the national heroes not born in his own country, technically. Born in what's now France. Really? Yeah, Nice. Nizza. Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, and Nizza became Nice, and now it's French. Yeah, well, it's, it's clear that I guess maybe because Amer- uh, Anglo-Americans had no love for Garibaldi, Columbus was the one that they went with. Yeah, because there was already this existing phenomenon of naming things after him. Yeah, Columbus could be a very apolitical figure in the way that Garibaldi can't be. Yes. And I think another thing is that even though Garibaldi had a long and close association with the New World, Columbus was already more familiar to Anglo-Americans. He was an Italian that they knew. Although, of course, as we said, you know, there's some question about whether he really was Italian at all. The fact was, Italians identified with him. So increasingly across the late 19th century, 
different Italian communities start celebrating Columbus Day and having their own Columbus Day parades. But Columbus Day wouldn't really take off nationwide until 1891. Yes, and there's there's a reason for that. The events of New Orleans that we talked about earlier. Yeah, so to recap, 11 Italians were taken from their prison cells and murdered by a mob in retaliation for the murder of a police chief who was believed to have been killed by Italians. And this was the largest mass lynching in, in United States history. Although it should be noted, this wasn't the biggest ethnic massacre. Yeah, the, the Los Angeles Chinatown was massacred, the San Francisco Chinatown was massacred. Of course, um, in the 20th century, there was the, the race riot massacre in Tulsa. Or San Francisco Chinatown, there's a bunch of others. And the difference between a massacre and a lynching is that a lynching has a specific target. It's mob violence against a specific person, whereas these other massacres... Supposedly vigilante justice, yeah. Yeah, what happened in Tulsa is more of a pogrom, really. That's a much better way to put it, I agree. Yeah, that, that's a pogrom against black people, whereas this is a specific... Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lynching against suspected, but uh, most likely innocent, accused killers of a cop. And is killing a cop even really a crime? Come on. Here's an article from March 16th, just a couple days after the lynching from the New York Times. And I think this article does a great job of both summarizing the brutality of what happened and also gives a nice little idea a nice little look at the way the riot was seen by many americans yeah by non-italian new orleans people of new orleans but yeah new orleans mob shot to death 11 victims two or three others upon whom it sought to carry out if notions of justice could not be found as was said by the new hampshire clergyman who witnessed the sacking of the office of a copperhead quote-unquote newspaper at concord during the war of the rebellion it was a very respectable mob, quote-unquote. Nor did its leaders make any concealment of their part in the understanding. Mr. Parker, Mr. Denegre, and Mr. Wycliffe made short, exhortatory speeches. It was announced that Mr. Houston would be the, quote-unquote, first lieutenant. These were all well-known citizens of New Orleans. A, quote-unquote, committee had procured rifles, pistols, and shotguns. In broad daylight, the angry throng followed its leaders to the parish prison. Once inside the walls of the prison, they shot down the crouching and shrieking Italians as they would have shot down streetcars. The New Orleans Cotton Exchange at once adopted resolutions declaring the actions of the mob as proper and justifiable. How many citizens of the United States would believe that? There can be no doubt, however, that the people of New Orleans believe it. The Stock Exchange and the Board of Trade adopted similar resolutions. The newspapers did not condemn the lynching, and some New Orleans newspapers approve of it. Nor can there be any doubt that the mob's victims were desperate ruffians and murderers. These sneaking and cowardly Sicilians, the descendants of bandits and assassins, who have transported to this country the lawless passions, the cutthroat practices, and the oath-bound societies of their native country, are to us pests without mitigations. Our own rattlesnakes are as good citizens as they. Our own murderers are men of feeling and nobility compared to them. Yet while every good citizen will readily assent to the proposition that this affair is to be deplored, it would be difficult to find any one individual who would confess that privately he deplores it very much. That is because human nature, in some respects, has been but slightly modified since the days of savagery by civilization and criminal jurisprudence and quote-unquote respect for the constable staff. And so this New York Times piece, even though the language is very strong, is really actually uh, quite critical of the lynching. But it's showing how many people in New Orleans were just completely open supporters of this wanton display of cruelty, and many people outside of New Orleans weren't that inclined to condemn it. 
I think that uh, one interesting example of somebody who evaded justice was John Parker, who helped organize the lynch mob. 20 years later, he was elected governor of Louisiana. And you know what? Uh, could somebody read this quote by him about uh, what he has to say, Governor Parker, about Italians? He described Italians as, quote-unquote, just a little worse than the Negro, being, if anything, filthier in their habits, lawlessness, and tre treachery. Yeah, so there's just this... I, you could call it, I think, an outpouring of white supremacy against Italians. You have these people who, despite being from Europe, have uh, extreme anti-black racism, you know, grafted onto them. And I think it's that even though uh, it was definitely a lot worse, much, much worse to be a black person than an Italian person at this time. Oh, God, yeah. Like, in case that is, in case that is not clear, that it is much, much worse to be a black person, in, especially in the American South, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though this, even though that the the biggest lynching happened to be of Italians, the vast majority of lynchings were not of Italians, and African Americans were way more likely, and I, I'm almost positive were the majority of all people lynched. Absolutely, by leaps and bounds. Yeah. And I think that the the connection between anti-black racism and anti-Italian racism is really interesting here because there was another lynching in the city of Tallulah, Louisiana. This or a town, really, this small rural town in the north on the other side of the state, where a group of Italian immigrants, five of them, were hanged en masse by a white mob because it was rumored that these Italians treated blacks and whites equally in their stores. Wow, what a heinous crime. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So yeah, so there's, it, there's these, you can see these racial anxieties playing out over Italian immigration. On one hand, Italians are believed to be, you know, less white than other Europeans, therefore they're like a stain on the gene pool or whatever. On the other hand, because they're not American, because they're, they haven't, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid of American white supremacy, there's a fear that the presence of these foreigners could weaken these existing systems of racial control, especially in the South. Which are, yeah, exactly, incredibly important in the South for the maintenance of the political and economic uh, domination of the white upper class and the racial hierarchy in general. Yeah, there wasn't, because of this, there really wasn't much popular white opposition to the uh, the lynching. Even from other Catholics, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, is from, this is from Leslie's Weekly in uh, March of uh, 1891. Headlines, no regret for the death of, of 11 Sicilians. Probably no reasonable, intelligent, and honest person in the United States could regret the deaths of the 11 Sicilian prisoners in the New Orleans jail, Saturday, March 14th. Whether they were members of the law-defying mafia or not, they belonged apparently to the lowest criminal classes, and on general principles, deserved, and no doubt expected, to meet a violent death. And then, uh, just a couple months later, we have Senry Henry Cabot Lodge, who was from a pretty, uh, very famous political family, who went so far as to say, Such acts as the killing of these 11 Italians do not spring from nothing, without reason or provocation. The mob would have been impossible if there had not been a large body of public opinion behind it, and it had it not been recognized that it was not mere riot, but rather revenge, which Lord Bacon says is really just a kind of wild justice. Yeah, and this is an article where he's kind of trying to toe the line between saying, problem with it was that it was mob violence, but the targets, the targets are very good. And keep in mind that this was a so-called Northern Progressive. Yeah, uh, this is from a yeah a northern Republican. But although he was he was a you know a law a big uh, proponent of immigration restrictions generally, this is just one example of that. Yeah, many so-called progressives were open white supremacists, and they saw the betterment of the country as involving you know violent eugenics to purge the gene pool of undesirable elements. Yeah, yeah, many of them were eugenicists. Absolutely, yeah. 
so so if you're an Italian immigrant in like the year 1891, if you live in the north, you're going to have progressive politicians who might accept your votes, but at the same time, they're probably they're going to support a eugenicist program that excludes you. If you go to the south, you get fucking lynched because you're seen as, you know, you're seen as not white enough you're, or you're not like a reliable ally in white supremacy. You can maybe go out west where things might be a little bit easier for you, but even there, there is this big trend of uh Catholics of all types being slowly stripped of their power by incoming Anglo migrants. So really, it was just a very precarious time for these immigrants. So what I think is interesting is that even though there was not much public outcry in the United States against this mass lynching, there was a very rapid outcry from another country. Yeah, from Italy and the Italian government. This also, we should add, is something that uh, black people who were victims of lynchings, again, on a much larger scale, did not get. Which is a really interesting difference here. Even though these Italian immigrants were very poor and incredibly oppressed, they did have at least the spiritual support of the Italian government protecting them. And we should add that the Italian government was just 20 years old at this point. Yeah, yeah, black people had no such backers on the international stage. This became obviously a very big national event, this massive lynching of Italians, uh, to the point where it goes all the way up to the presidency. When President Harrison, trying to ease the rupture of relations between Italy and the United States created by the lynchings, allocated a cash indemnity of $2,500 for the families of three victims who were Italian nationals, Congress protested, Harrison was accused of, quote-unquote, unconstitutional usurpation of congressional powers of spending from an emergency fund where there was no emergency. No indemnity was paid to the families of the victims who were American citizens. When the president denounced the lynchings as a, quote-unquote, offense against law and humanity, there was talk of impeaching him. I think this really just goes to show just both the level of anti-Italian sentiment at this time, but also just the fervor of, you know, American racism. So these are immigrants straight from Europe, yet they're just treated with this extreme vitriol to the extent that if the president uh, makes any kind of apology for an act of horrific violence against them, he suddenly has a target on his back. And the lynching and the coverage of it had another very interesting legacy in that this was the first time that the American public was introduced to the idea of the mafia. Yes, because they, the mob uh, were accused of assassinating the, the police officer. And the people who got lynched were supposedly members of the mafia. And so uh, from this point onwards, Italians were associated with the mob, which was an image that they worked very hard to change. <laughs> and I think it's a, it's, there's some, definitely some irony there, some projection in the fact that, you know, Anglo whites who are part of this lynch mob are the ones going around and saying, actually, Italians, you guys are the violent ones. So after the lynchings, there was this enormous crisis within the Italian community, because even though there had been violence against them before, this was really uh, much more brutal than previous acts of, you know, anti-Italian hatred. And so there was an immediate campaign toward the U.S. government asking for support. But because Harrison had been rebuked earlier by his opponents, he needed a less material and more symbolic way to really if not protect Italian-Americans, prevent further outbreaks of violence. Because even, I think, a lot of racists who didn't condemn the mob, they probably recognize that you didn't want too much unrest in this country. Especially if Italians are being racialized as violent, you probably don't want to get them, you know, too angry. And so what happened was, uh, just by a, a stroke of luck, this horrific lynching happened only a few months before the 400th anniversary 
of Columbus's landing in Hispaniola. So this meant that President Benjamin Harrison announced that October 12th, 1892 would be the first National Columbus Day. So really, this is where the idea of Columbus Day leaves the confines of the Italian communities in America's cities, and for the first time enters the national consciousness. You have this idea that Columbus, who previously had some association as this national American figure, now should be celebrated in this specific day. Although what's funny is that initially it was meant to be a one-time thing, really just to diffuse Anglo and Italian tensions, uh, it ultimately became, like we said, this very controversial lasting holiday. So um, assimilation was a big concern uh, both for outsiders as well as members of the community in various ways. There was a lot of fear from the American perspective about uh, the supposedly inassimilable nature of Italians, but there were also other aspects as well. So, for example, you had a bunch of cultural reasons. Well, you know, the stereotype about Italians being lazy and not really working or whatever. So, like, But I guess you found out that uh, <laughs> despite that stereotype... Yeah, despite the stereotype, in, in 1890, 90% of public works employees in New York City and 99% in Chicago were Italians. And it's like, they literally built the public infrastructure of those cities, like the subways, like the water systems, and a lot of them died doing that. Like, That's, it's crazy. It's like, it, there's, there's so many stereotypes like that, but it's like today how, you know, with like uh, Latinos, there's a contradictory coexisting stereotype of them as lazy and also as low-income workers yeah like they're stealing all the jobs but also they're mooching off of us <laughs> yeah it's ridiculous and i guess so, so, to you tell me about this i know that you also thought that um there was a fear that uh italian individualism was somehow a contrast with like the american character so italians were a very collective-minded people which a lot of rural americans at this point were as well capitalism had not dissolved those bonds yet but italians tended to be like very like family slash community oriented. And this extended to not trusting authorities originally stemming from the fact that back home um, in Italy, first of all, when the unification of Italy happened, suddenly these peasants were faced with a bunch of new taxes, which in aggregate didn't really get them anything. So they just sort of learned to keep their mouths shut and just watch out for their family. And it's funny you should mention families because one way that many Italian immigrants did differ substantially from Anglo-Americans was the fact that they did have really big families. Like, <laughs> that stereotype was statistically true. And just like racists today, especially in Europe, there was a lot of anxiety in early 20th century America about Italian birth rates. Because in, a, in New York City, for instance, which had and probably still has the largest Italian-American population of any community, the uh, birth rate in 1910 of Italian women was over twice that of non-Italians. So there was this um, big anxiety that, you know, the Italians are coming over in too many numbers and they're reproducing too fast. And you actually, you know, one thing you could maybe argue uh, is that part of why this difference in birth rates existed might have been the fact that traditionally Italians were incredibly Catholic and Catholics, of course, had uh, pretty strong traditions against contraceptive. Oh, yeah. But speaking of Catholicism, uh, they were very Catholic, yes, but they were very Catholic in a very different way from what uh, the Catholics who already in America, mostly Germans and Irish, were. So first of all, you had a streak of anti-clericalism because, again, the priests were kind of an arm of the state. 
at that point. And so, like, they just didn't trust them, but they still believed in God. They were very pious and church-going. In contrast to the formal Irish Catholic services, the Italian Mass was one of intimate and joyous celebration. An Irish friend of Richard Gambino, the historian, told me that his parents were, quote, shocked and aghast, unquote, at the Italian women in their church who kissed and caressed statues of religious figures. Father Thomas Hilferty, an Irish priest assigned to an Italian parish in Philadelphia, found the Italian attitude towards religious statues, quote, a startling contrast to that uh, out of his fellow Irish, who regarded the statues as symbols. To the Italian worshippers, they were far more than that. They would actually get up and talk to the statues, marveled Hilferty. They would say, Anthony, my son's been involved with bad people. Either straighten the situation, or I'm not going to pray to you. The Irish never did that. There was also a difference in how the Italian and Irish worshippers viewed sin. For the Irish, a mortal sin that went unconfessed placed one's soul in jeopardy. The Italians, in contrast, viewed God uh, God as an all-understanding, all-compassionate, forgiving being. That's from La Storia. And it was really wacky because for all of the church's rhetoric about inclusivity and love for one's brother, Italians were really disdained. Like a lot of communities just didn't have an Italian speaking priest, first of all. And second of all, Italians who went to mass would be relegated to like the basements under the actual church. So it was incredibly degrading. That's crazy. I guess because the, the, presumably the priest would be Irish. Yeah, yeah. And, and in other instances, they were actually uh, put in the same section as uh, black worshippers. That's really interesting. Yeah. So there's this. Yeah. So there's this racialism. There, there is an, in some ways a shared racialism in some kind of minor ways between black people and Italians that wasn't as true, I would say, for the Irish. Italian immigrants experienced more race, racist hardship than other white Christians did. And I think that, like, uh, often the Irish and the Italians are discussed in the same breath in terms of, like, the assimilation process. But I think it's true that the Italians had a harder time with it. Yeah, like, at least the Irish spoke English as a first language for the most part. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Hey, there's there's been two Irish presidents. There's been no Italian presidents. There wasn't even an Italian-American cardinal until 1982. Yeah, it took them a very long time to break into uh, the, uh, the higher echelon of American society across the board. And another huge difference between Italians and the American mainstream was their cuisine, of course. This is probably something that the Italians are most well known for uh, in the U.S. today. Their Anglos in this period were real sickos. They were on that uh, a Victorian wave, and they had a problem with that. Pepper is not, like salt, a mineral substance. It is a vegetable poison. It is in no sense a food, but in every sense a stimulant, which is but another name for a substance non-usable by the vital organs, and therefore to be thrown out of the vital domain. It is needless to say that ginger, spices, nutmeg, cinnamon, and all that class of, con- of condiments must be put in the list of things forbidden in the hygienic diet. The habit, every year increasing, of using spices and condiments in almost every article of food, and in such large quantities, cannot be too severely condemned. In doing away with spices and condiments, we must also dispense with pickles. There is nothing in a pickle to redeem it from hopeless condemnation. It's from Health in the Household or Hygienic Cookery from 1883. If you eat uh, black pepper or cinnamon, you're literally poisoning yourself. (laughs) I think actually uh, what's kind of especially funny about that quote is that maybe 50, 60 years after this, you actually had large numbers of Anglo-Americans becoming obsessed with Italian food, especially after World War II. Although, as we're going to talk about in a minute, a lot of times the American interest in Italian food didn't actually have much in common with genuine food traditions from Italy. Yeah, it was uh, spaghetti and meatballs. Mamma mia. Yes, not as much interest in like, you know, pork osobuco or actual, you know, like actual dishes. You don't see a lot of Midwesterners eating squid ink pasta, for instance. 
Although they should, that shit is delicious. <laughs> That's true. So food was actually a huge concern for social workers who were constantly in immigrant homes who were basically trying to like assimilate these families into an American way of life. Yeah, no, there, it was it was a, a broad racist project basically meant to eradicate aspects of these traditional cultures that were seen as foreign. Um, I watched this PBS documentary, The Italian Americans, and one thing that they bring up is the fact that these social workers were pushing for food like oatmeal, for example, which back in Italy was like pig food, basically. So so these Italians were incensed that like they're trying to feed them pig food in America. <laughs> uh, that's awful. And you know what's really, I think, is the most tragic thing about this? Italians did assimilate pretty rapidly. And even though, even if the immigrant generation themselves did not assimilate, by the second generation, you generally had children speaking English and in probably many cases, you know, doing more traditional American practices. Like the thing with assimilation is that like, it doesn't really happen except from like maybe well-educated people. For example, uh, I'm Russian American and like, I would say that like, most people of my parents' generation, they're not assimilated. Like Russian was the language spoken at home. And, and there's a preservation of like a Russian slash Soviet identity to some extent. But the kids, man, like the kids often just barely speak Russian at all. And they're just very eager to melt into mainstream white American society. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah, you see this everywhere. A really funny flip side to this is the fact that there was a lot of fear about uh, Italian criminality in this period. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. And this is this really is one of the longest lasting stereotypes of Italians, the association with crime, you know, it's it's been it's been going on since the 1890s. And it's uh, one thing that you found out is that actually, despite these fears, Italian immigrants had a lower crime rate than general Americans. Yeah, uh, immigrants in general tend to have a lower crime rate than than society at large. And this was the case back then. Oh, yeah, this is this is still true today. But the interesting thing is that the children of these people were far likelier to get involved in crime, especially the mob, because they saw it as an avenue to become wealthy and to actually live the American dream. Whereas previously they were living in these tenements with like nine siblings and parents who were working like 12 hour days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for example, uh, the superstars of the Italian mafia, like Al Capone and Lucky Luciano, those guys were all either born in the United States or came here as very young children. Yeah, and one really obvious engine of assimilation, which is still true today, of course, was public education. Yeah, this is really the purpose of public education. Like, ultimately, despite all the stuff that you hear about, like, the importance of education, yada, yada, yada. And I mean, yeah, it is important for advancement within society. Like, you're, you're going to have a hard time doing it with just a high school diploma. But the primary goal here really is to create the nation, to create a citizenry which considers itself a part of a cohesive whole. And uh, here's a quote from La Storia, uh, which talks about the ways immigrant children of this generation were integrated. The teacher felt the duty, often carried out with affection, to Americanize the immigrant child as quickly as possible. This was school policy. There was daily patriotic flag drills, something that was absent in European schools, and English was learned along with the myths and legends of America. Assemblies on Fridays and special holidays were usually dedicated to patriotic themes. On Washington's birthday, speeches by principals reminded children of the legendary father of America, reinforced in some schools by cherry-flavored lollipops in the shape of an axe. And, you know, this really brings me, brings to mind the whole theme of this episode, how Columbus Day is a broad American myth about the supposed founding of this country, 
but that also happens to overlap with Italian identity politics. So it really is just a very natural point for Italian immigrants to gravitate to. Oh, absolutely. Although, uh, as we're about to find out, there actually would be a lot less Italian immigrants very shortly. Because starting with 1917, the U.S. government began to pass a series of quite racist legislation that heavily limited immigration to the United States, even from Europe. Um, at this point, it was mostly screening by mental capacity or illness, or in the case of women, for example, uh, they wouldn't accept unmarried women, which is highlighted in Nuovo Mundo. But with this series of acts, suddenly you find an expansion of that framework to encompass a much larger area. And one really big impetus behind these immigration restrictions, in addition to just, to just base racism, was the first Red Scare. Because of that existing stereotype of Italians as radicals, when uh, the Russian Revolution happens and there's this global panic about communism, you suddenly see this crackdown on immigrant groups believed to be bringing socialism into this country. And the two groups that were most heavily targeted were Jewish Americans and Italian Americans. Yeah, so then in 1921, you saw the passage of the Emergency Quota Act, which restricted uh, yearly immigration to just 3% of the number of residents from each country, according to the 1910 census. So for example, if there were a 1000 uh, Italians living in the United States in uh, 2010, basically, they would allow in uh, 30 people. But really, the US brought out the big guns in 1924, with the Immigration Act, which made the 1921 provisions permanent, which brought the quota down to 2% and also introduced visas for the first time. This policy, which was really basically formulated to keep out Jews and Italians, severely restricted immigration to the United States throughout many decades. And uh, what's crazy is that this law wasn't actually repealed until 1965, when a new Immigration Act was passed that allowed much less brutal restrictions on place of origin for immigrants, which allowed for further immigration, not only from Southern and Eastern Europe, but also from Asia and Latin America. The Immigration Act of 1924 revised the figure down to 2%, but that wasn't the same uh, census, uh, whereas the first one was the 1910 census. This was the 1890 census, so so this was even fewer. Oh, so it was based on an even smaller population. That's crazy. What I do find kind of interesting, though, is that despite this increased turn against, you know, Italian presence in America, in the early 20th century, a lot of Italians did rise to prominence. One of the first famous Italian Americans was Rudolf Valentino. Uh, although we should probably note that even though he was a popular actor in the silent era, the newspapers would just casually call him a WAP. It wasn't seen as offensive to do so. Because of his Italian heritage, he was, you know, totally pegged down as this, like, so-called Latin lover who played these very exotic roles. And this was actually quite sad because he wanted to be a more serious actor and get roles where he wasn't typecast into this kind of role, but he just wasn't able to do it. Another uh, prominent Hollywood Italian person who had a much nicer life was Frank Capra, who's born in Italy, and uh, he directed all these movies from the 30s and 40s that you've probably seen. It Happened One Night, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and probably most famously these days, the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, all around excellent director. One more Italian celebrity this time was Joe DiMaggio, who a lot of people say is, you know, the best baseball player of all time. He was from an Italian family, although as we're going to get to in a second, his parents had a much harder time than he did. 
And in addition to these cultural figures, um, Italians were increasingly becoming prominent in politics, especially on the East Coast, primarily as Democrats. So the most famous example would probably be Al Smith, who was basically like a quarter Italian and his father had like changed his name to be more Anglo sounding. Uh, He was elected as the governor of New York in 1923 and tried to run for president in 28, but he lost. And there was this huge backlash against his campaign. So in the same way that you had stuff talking about how creeping Sharia is coming, uh, back in the good old days, uh, you saw a lot of the same theories drawn around about Catholics. So you had a contingent of people who believed that Al Smith, who was openly Catholic, they believed that he was planning to move the papacy to Washington, D.C. So so America could become a Pope-run theocratic state. <laughs> And these kinds of ideas didn't go away. Like, it continued all the way until the election of John F. Kennedy. (laughs) Absolutely. And actually, not many people know that, but this really is Joe Biden's secret plan. And But, you know, it is true that Italians and Catholics in general at this time were very democratic. And in one big departure from today, as we'll talk about, in 1936, you had 88% of Italians voting for FDR, which is crazy. 88%. Uh, Speaking of FDR... uh... Um, in 1942, FDR has signed uh, the legal framework, which was used to intern Japanese Americans. But there were also attempts to intern Italians, interestingly enough. Yeah. So it, it wasn't feasible in the East Coast, because in the East Coast at this time, a lot of cities were at least 20% Italian. However, about 700,000 Italians, almost, who didn't have U.S. citizenship were forced to register themselves as enemy aliens during the war. Yeah, and just to be clear about who these people were, most of these were women and these grandmothers who had never gotten American citizenship because like, they didn't speak the language, they weren't literate, and they just were fine without it up until that point, so they just didn't bother to. Yeah, uh, but however, on the West Coast, it's a really different story. And you actually had a lot of Italians being caught up in the internment push of Japanese. So I think the best example is that General John DeWitt, who oversaw uh, this internment of Japanese, actually also pushed to have it extended to Italians and Germans. And in California, 10,000 Italians were forced to leave their homes, and hundreds of them were actually sent to the same internment camps as the Japanese, which is pretty interesting. And uh, going back to Joe DiMaggio, he might have been a famous baseball star, but his parents were just ordinary working class Italian folks. His father was a fisherman and his father was banned from working in in Los Angeles's uh, Fisherman's Wharf. Like they just were not allowed to go out to sea at all because they were afraid that this would be used as a way to like infiltrate people and to pass information along to to the Axis powers. And the situation got so toxic that the mayor of San Francisco, uh, Amangelo Rossi, who obviously wasn't Irish, got dragged before the California House of Un-American Activities, uh, largely on account of his ethnicity. And there was even a push in Los Angeles and Orange County, which had some of the biggest Italian populations in the state, to be completely cleared of Italian residents. And it actually took intervention by Roosevelt himself to stop Italians here from being deported. Yeah, and funnily enough, this is actually something that Mussolini himself had wanted. He basically wanted to infiltrate Italian agents into the United States for sabotage missions to cause reprisals against Italian-Americans. And this would have the double effect of, first of all, weakening the loyalty of Italian-Americans who would have been 
persecuted by the government for something that they hadn't done. And secondly, it would have also precluded those people from contributing to the war effort to the fullest extent. And Italians were a very large segment of the American population at that point. So their non-participation would not have been trivial. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, long through short, it didn't work. Because Italian-Americans at large were very eager participants in World War II, you know, on America's behalf. And uh, they were actually a disproportionate portion of the of, of servicemen. Up to a million and a half Italian-Americans served, which was about 10% of the entire service body. I haven't been able to find statistics about how many Italians there were exactly in the United States in 1942, but I have an inkling that they were overrepresented. So even though World War II led to more tensions between Italians and the government, it also had the effect of creating this civic nationalism that smoothed out previous ethnic differences, especially among white Americans. And you also saw after the war, you had a major push to assimilation with the GI Bill, because suddenly all these Italian-Americans had this new avenue to middle-class life that they never would have had before. So naturally, as a result of, of the GI Bill, which gave them access to subsidized education and housing, they were able to move up the economic ranks and, and become much more middle-class than they had been before the war. I mean, this is where we bring in the second piece of media for tonight's episode, a 1996 movie called The Big Night. Uh, basically, the premise of the movie is that you have these two Italian brothers, like Italian-Italian, who had immigrated and they're running this authentic Italian-American restaurant that serves actual Italian food. <laughs> but I guess that, but that eventually, that the fact that it's authentic is kind of the problem. So they don't have a lot of business because Americans aren't into Italian-Italian food. Like the restaurant is being foreclosed on because they aren't able to keep up with payments. And so they're trying to save the restaurant as a last-ditch effort. Uh, this movie is... Like, I went into it expecting it to be this typical, like, 90s comedy where it's, like, it seems serious, but it's very lighthearted, and in the end, everything works out. But it doesn't exactly work like that. No, yeah, yeah, no. It's it's, it's quite dark at times, because it shows, you know, the way that, like, uh, <laughs> assimilation often comes with basically abandoning a lot of your previous cultural values, because they aren't compatible with, you know, America of the 50s. You know, but of course, this despite the broad trend of assimilation, there still were these kind of lingering hints of Italian otherization. I know that you found this really crazy article from the New York Times in 1966, and the headline was, Brunette Couple Forbidden to Adopt Blonde Girl. Mr. and Mrs. Leone of Ulster County, New York, were unable to adopt their four-year-old foster child, Beth whom they had known since she was an infant, because the county welfare commissioner ruled that Leonie's coloring and ethnic background made them inappropriate parents for a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. When the Leonis appealed the ruling, a family court judge supported the welfare commissioner and further ordered the Leonie to give up the child. And thankfully, once the story uh, blew up, uh, the Leonis got to keep this girl and to actually raise her. Oh, but isn't it crazy that this was possible, like, in 1966? In the 60s, yeah. So this was, like, amid the, the civil rights movement, there was still this much bigotry against Italians of all groups. Um, and I guess another important thing in the 1960s was there probably was at least as much of an association with crime as there had been in the 30s or the 1890s. In addition to, you know, big movies like The Godfather and Mean Streets, often made by Italian filmmakers about the, you know, Italian mafia, you also have these high-profile criminal trials, especially those spearheaded by the Kennedy administration against the mob. Even though the mob probably got Kennedy elected in the first place. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And you'll probably know coincidence is that in the 1560s, there actually was a fair amount of, you know, mafia embeddedness within these East Coast democratic machines. A lot of cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, New York did have some entrenched Italian mafia power, but it wasn't like every Italian person was a gangster. That, that's, that's ridiculous. And it also wasn't just Italian. Like, you also had the Jewish mafia, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bugsy Siegel built Las Vegas. Like, yes, there was a problem uh, with the mob, but this wasn't, like, specifically an Italian problem. But uh, but even today, I reckon that if you say the word mafia to someone, they're immediately going to jump to Italians. Yeah, it's a lingering stereotype. And I guess, you know, uh, as, as a response to the stereotype, you did have a lot of Italian-Americans who started to demand better media representation, and some of them even formed organizations trying to fight this. Yeah, so in 1967, a group of Italian-Americans in New York formed Italian Anti-Defamation League, which is based off the much more well-known the American Anti-Defamation League, which is more of a Jewish-slash-Zionist group. And uh, this uh, led to some very funny consequences <laughs> In 1967, Frank Sinatra, who was active in the African-American civil rights movement, accepted the role of national chairman of a new American-Italian Anti-Defamation League with the major aim of combating stereotypes of Italian-Americans as connected to the mob. Alas, Sinatra was swiftly criticized in the New York Times editorial page for having his own mob connections, which it turned out were real. And after this, the Anti-Defamation League of Benai Brith, which had honored Sinatra in the past, filed a lawsuit against the organization for its use of the phrase anti-defamation, which the Jewish League claimed as its own. The comic nature of the situation did not go unnoticed. The normally stayed times printed the semi-serious headline, Italians and Jews go to court. One thing we should mention is that although many people involved in the Italian-Americans anti-stereotype you know, movement were well-intentioned, it did pretty quickly get bogged down by the fact that a lot of the people fighting this stereotype of Italians as criminals actually were themselves involved in organized crime. Yeah, so uh, most comically, in 1970, Joe Colombo of the Colombo crime family, aka probably the most famous mafia syndicate in the United States ever, uh, founded the so-called Italian-American Civil Rights League. Colombo uh, was insistent that he was an honest real estate broker and he had made all his money honestly and that he was being targeted by the FBI because of anti-Italian sentiments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I guess uh, as shown in the movie The Irishman, well, he was he was shot at least at a at a rally for the Italian American Civil Rights League. Yeah, I've also seen some question about to what extent he was actually disabled because like it's often said that he was put in a coma, but I've also heard speculation that he was faking it. He was playing it up. Yeah, to uh, <laughs> to escape prosecution. <laughs> That's funny. And speaking of Joe Colombo, there's a very interesting link that some of you may very much enjoy. So there's this organization called the Jewish Defense League. Like, they're basically just Jewish skinheads. They're right-wing, and they have, you could argue, racist views. Oh, extremely racist, extremely right-wing. And they were founded by this rabbi named Meyer Kahana. The JDL and Kahana himself had actually had links to Colombo and the Italian-American Civil Rights League. Yeah, so Colombo found out about Kahana from his lawyer, who was also uh, a representing Kahana, who at the time was in jail uh, for a bomb-making charge. And his bail was set at $25,000, which was a huge sum of money that he couldn't afford. And once Colombo heard about this, he just went the next day and bailed him out. The Jewish Defense League got weapons and money, tons of money from Colombo, said Irving Calderon. 
Columbo thought he got respect from being seen as a famous rabbi, even though at the time, most Jewish Americans didn't respect Gahan. Columbo got something more than just respect. Some of the JDL's toughest members worked as strong-arm men and loan sharks for the Columbo family, said Zwiebin. They wanted us to do their muscle work for them, you know, collecting loan shark debts. Calderon also said that Columbo helped the JDL carry out several of its terroristic missions, though he'll not say which ones. Our relationship with Columbo gave us more clout, says Calderon. People are afraid of the mafia. It gives our enemies, like the Black Panthers, something to consider. Gahan would later say that if Jabotinsky, who was a famous radical, militant, right-wing Zionist of the 30s, could deal with Mussolini, then we can deal with Colombo. Yeah, and uh, they had a very close friendship and were constantly speaking out for each other's causes. Um, at one point, Colombo went on ABC and said that Italian-Americans demand the American government cut relations with the Russians unless they let the Jews go. <laughs> so I guess in a, in a way, uh, Russian Sam... Joe Colombo is the reason why you're on this podcast. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, and, and as you mentioned, so this is now we're moving on into the 50s, 60s, 70s. Even though so much about Italian society is changing, one common factor is that Columbus Day is still a really important part of Italian American society. Even as Italian Americans begin to assimilate and are no longer the victims of such brutal racism, they're just as connected to the figure of Columbus and really all that that implies. Yeah, so Columbus was used rhetorically for a number of purposes. Um, among them, immigration reform was a very important fight. Like, like they were personally affected by these immigration restrictions. It, it meant in practice that it was very difficult for families to reunite. And so as a result of this, Columbus got a facelift. Annual Columbus Day celebrations provided Italian-Americans with opportunities and public platforms to highlight or even reinterpret aspects of the Italian immigrant experience in the U.S. Italian-Americans linked the figure of Columbus with that of the immigrant, and thus used the holiday to lay claim to an immigration and citizenship rights. Immigrant gift discourse was a standard part of the Italian-American celebrations of Columbus Day in the post-war period. The day was used to commemorate how natural, naturalized citizens and the children of immigrants steadfastly fought for the preservation of democracy against fascism, against communism. These and other deeds le led one, to, one advocate to assert, the land discovered by Columbus is an immigrant country. Its greatness, its strength were made and are being made through the combined efforts of all us immigrants and sons of immigrants. Many Columbus Day celebrants often reinterpreted popular narratives in American history in an attempt to convince a broader audience of full Italian-American membership in the nation. Italian-Americans frequently reimagined Columbus as America's first immigrant. Italians were recast, not as recent arrivals, but as some of the very first Europeans who migrated to the areas that would become the U.S. In such an account, all other immigrants followed in Italian footsteps. Um, ultimately, all, all of these fights amounted to something, and in 1968, Lyndon B. Johnson signed a bill which made Columbus Day a federal holiday as of 1971. Yeah, so this is, so it's uh, almost, so it's 80 years after the initial signing um, as a one-time celebration, it's finally become a federal holiday celebrated every year by the entire government. And corresponding with the assimilation of Italian-Americans in these post-war decades is also the suburbanization of Italian communities, as many Italian-Americans move out of these major cities into surrounding suburbs. And one shift that happened at the exact same time that probably is closely connected to suburbanization is the fact that many Italian-Americans began drifting away from the Democratic Party and toward right-wing politics. Yeah, and this is very typical of most white ethnic groups in this country. Um, assimilation basically means taking on all of the aspects of whiteness, including the particularly atrocious ones, which Italians themselves had uh, 
what are we been killed by? Yeah, yeah. There's absolutely an irony here. And it's the irony you see again and again in American history. Yeah, so when the civil rights movement uh, finally hits its full swing in the 1960s, many white ethnics in urban areas and inner suburbs were very fierce in their opposition to integration, which led to violent clashes in deep blue cities like Chicago and Boston between longtime white residents and African-Americans. And Chicago was actually like the only place where Martin Luther King Jr. got physically assaulted. Really? That's crazy. And then once uh, Richard Nixon is running for for president once again, he starts to make some anti-civil rights dog whistles. Uh, uh, Nixon was able to see significant gains among white ethnics uh, who started to vote for the Republicans in larger numbers from this point. Yeah. And also, you know, the, the law and order campaign initially in response to the Watts riots in 65 and then against other riots across the U.S. in 68, you started seeing a whole bunch of Italian Americans, as well as Irish Americans and you know Polish Americans, become Republicans. They move to the suburbs. They are very racist, and they they see Nixon on TV, and then they vote for him in '68. I guess the next big shift that we saw in the same direction was in the '80s, where the whole Reagan Revolution convinced all these Italian Americans and many other blue-collar ethnic whites that the unions that they'd been part of and the regulations which protect their them at the workplace are actually oppressing them. And that it's not capitalists that's the problem, it's all the red tape, it's all the bureaucracy. And that if you can vote for Reagan, you can you know strip American capitalism down to its bare essentials, and then you can get rich. Uh, Italian Americans these days, under uh, especially since 2016, are way more right-wing than they were, than their grandparents were. And according to this 2016 BuzzFeed survey, Italians were actually some of the most right-wing Americans in the country. And that uh, Italian Americans supported Trump over Hillary by a margin of 61 to 39, which was a one point ahead of WASPs, who had you know always been the traditional bulwark of reaction, and even 10 points ahead of the Irish, and maybe less surprisingly, uh, a full 37 points ahead of Jewish Americans, who remain one of the only white ethnic groups to be consistently liberal. One uh, pretty interesting case study of the right-wing shift in Italian politics is Buddy Cianci. Anybody who's listened to that podcast, Crime Town, from a couple years ago knows who this guy is. He was a Democratic lawyer who rose to prominence fighting the Patriarca crime family of Rhode Island, but then in 74, switched parties, became a Republican, and was elected as mayor on this anti-corruption and also pro-austerity platform. Yeah, and this is kind of irrelevant, but the moment I laid my eyes on this man's photo, I, I just instantly associated him with Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> Yeah, no, and uh, definitely not too far off in uh, morality, because in 1984, Buddy Stancy uh, was arrested on torture, kidnapping, and assault charges because uh, he horribly maimed a man that he claimed was banging his wife. And something I think is kind of funny about Buddy Stancy, our last little note about him, is that uh, he was because he was convicted of this crime, you know, he was forced to resign as mayor. But what I think is pretty funny is that the rule which prevented convicted felons from holding city office was actually written by him years earlier during his time as an anti-mob lawyer. <laughs> that rules. And, you know, uh, Cianci's enemies, the patriarch crime family, are actually themselves a really interesting illustration in the increasingly right-wing tenor of Italian-American politics, especially on the radical edge. Because you have Raymond Patriarca, the leader of this family, actually 
buddying up with George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the founder of the American Nazi Party. So despite the fact that he was a member of an ethnic group, which, you know, in his grandparents' lifetime would have been lynched, this patriarchal crime family helped to pay for the construction of the so-called white American church in Maine and plotted the assassination uh, of the senator from Massachusetts, Ed Brooke, who was the first black person to be elected to the Senate since Reconstruction. And I think one thing that's kind of interesting is also is that actually one of the members of the Nazi party, the American Nazi party, was Italian. There was a guy named Joseph Tomasi, who was apparently one of the most brutal members of the Nazis. But what's uh, kind of funny is that uh, because he was Italian, the other Nazis hated him. And they, uh, they actually called him Tomato Joe because of his heritage. That's a great Trump nickname. <laughs> So in 1972, uh, to uh, bring in another thread, uh, Tomasi was involved in a shootout with the JDL. So basically, in this conflict between the JDL and the Nazis, you have Italians uh, on both sides. Yeah, although <laughs> that's pretty funny, although we, of course, we probably should mention that not all Italian Americans in the 1670s were right-wing or racist. Um, I think that one interesting example of this is that in 56, the only Florida Democrat to oppose racial segregation was the Italian-American Dante Fischel. And another important Italian-American civil rights activist was Father Geno Baroni, who was this Philadelphia priest who actually marched with Martin Luther King and was involved in civil rights protests in 25 different cities in the South. Yeah, and to perhaps bring up the most tragic of these examples, there was a notorious case where uh, Viola Aluizzo, who was a 39-year-old housewife who was also involved as a civil rights activist driving people home after uh, the march in Selma in March 1965, her car was ambushed by a car filled with KKK members who pulled up on her and fired upon her, killing her. And it should be noted that one of the men in that Klan car was an FBI infiltrator. During the trial of her killers, uh, the FBI took part in a smear campaign against Luizzo's family to divert attention away from FBI culpability. Oh, it's, it's awful. And I don't want that this, this smear campaign was horrific against this woman. So she had been killed, you know, fighting for civil rights. And then um, afterwards, during the trial, her, her daughter was, had the N-word shattered. Her white daughter had the N-word shattered at her by racists and it was even uh pelted with rocks on the way to school yeah uh martin luther king jr would attend uh, luizzo's funeral because it was genuinely huge news across the country it was shocking and then of course just three years after this king himself would be assassinated but one last little detail here is that the legislation to make his birthday a federal holiday in 1983 was actually written by italian-american congressman peter rodino of new jersey yeah, so despite this, uh, the general trend of increased Italian participation and in the broader project of American reaction is undeniable. There's a particularly nasty example of this uh, that happened right here in New York City in 1989, and that was the murder of Yusuf Hawkins. Before the outrage over Tamir Rice's shooting in Cleveland, before the protest for uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson, before the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's killer launched the Black Lives Matter movement, before the nationwide marches for racial justice in summer 2020, there was the story of Yusuf Hawkins in New York. Hawkins was 16 years old when, in August 1989, he traveled with three friends to the insular white neighborhood of Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, from his predominantly black neighborhood of East New York, to inspect a used car. Shortly after 9 p.m., a mob of white teenagers, some brandishing baseball bats, amped by a rumor that a local girl had invited black friends to town to taunt them, cornered the group. Someone fired a gun. Two bullets struck Hawkins in the chest, killing him. 
1989, the neighborhood of Bensonhurst was predominantly working-class Italian-American. Yusuf's group, according to his younger brother Freddie and his friends Christopher Graham and Luther Sylvester, never went there. Bensonhurst was seven miles from East New York, but a different world. Joseph Fama, then 19, was convicted of second-degree murder in 1990 and sentenced to 32 years in prison. He's up for parole in 2022. The alleged ringleader of the mob, Keith Mondello, was acquitted of murder and manslaughter, but convicted of lesser charges. He was released from prison in 1998. Of the 30 or so people believed to have, cor- have cornered Hawkins and his friends, only eight were charged. Yeah, and I think, honestly, this kind of brings us full circle in a really horrific way. How in the 1890s, Italians are targeted in the largest mass lynching on in U.S. history. And then in the 1980s, Italians are instigating one of the most recent lynchings against African Americans. Yeah, and this really very neatly brings us to, to a question, n- namely... If Italians are no longer victims of racism in America, what is the purpose of Columbus Day in this day and age? I think that, you know, uh, also in the 60s, I think it's important to mention here, was the birth of the American Indian movement, which was this big outpouring of, of rage and activism in favor of indigenous rights, oftentimes with a very militant character. And these Native American protesters since the 60s have really wanted to educate the public about Christopher Columbus's involvement in oppression and genocide. As a result of their efforts uh, in the last couple of years, there's been an increasingly serious push to get rid of Columbus Day as a concept. And this is perhaps most famously portrayed in a particular episode of The Sopranos (laughs) called Christopher. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. In that episode, there's a struggle where a local Native American group wants to get rid of a popular statue of Christopher Columbus that had been paid for by an Italian society. And the, the mob guys in the show are really upset about it. Although one of the most famous parts of this episode, which, to be honest, half of the people listening here probably probably know what I'm about to say. It's the part where the only member of the gang who's actually from Italy explains how he actually doesn't like Christopher Columbus. Because Columbus was Genoese, and he's from Naples. They don't get along. Yeah, that was a great episode all around. It often has the reputation of being the worst episode of The Sopranos. Like, it's hilarious. It's excellent satire. And it's very relevant because, you know, just last year, tensions flared up pretty heavily as all of these statues were torn down by, you know, anti-racist protesters, especially statues of Columbus. And I think it's kind of interesting to note that even though it's possible that some of these statues of Columbus were basically put up to defend a certain group from racism... 80, 90, 120 years later, Italian-Americans really aren't the victims of any noticeable racial animus. It's a very different country now, where racism is still an enormous problem, but I think it's fair to say that Italians are are more likely to be on the offending end these days than the receiving end. That's the American dream. Uh, one day your grandparents are getting lynched, and then suddenly you're the one doing the lynching. Yeah, you, you move to the better side of town. And you're on the other side of the protest. And so finally, uh, last week on October 8th, 50 years after the federal recognition of Columbus Day, Joe Biden announced that Indigenous Peoples Day is going to be celebrated alongside Columbus Day this year. <laughs> which, is, which is a pretty funny, I think it's a pretty funny compromise, you know. You have like uh, the victims of the genocide and the guy who sort of got the whole thing started on the same holiday. Yeah, like if you're going to do it, you might as well go the New York crowd and just call it Italian Heritage slash Indigenous Peoples Day. <laughs> Wait, thank you so much, Russian Sam, for putting together this really great episode. You know, even if you might not be Italian, you're a New Yorker, you're a lifelong New Yorker. So I think that means you're at least a little bit qualified to talk about this subject. I'm a little bit Italian. 
by relations. I think that we should also say, you know, most important of all, that the official stance of Gladio for Europe is that we're anti-Columbus Day, but like we said, we do think there should be an Italian holiday. And I think that, I think it's fair to say that the best Italian holiday there should be is Garibaldi Day. So everybody listening, you know, call your senator, pick it outside your local pizza joint and tell them America needs Garibaldi Day. So we're going to end this episode with this pretty cool 1925 song that's, uh, it's a son who emigrated from Italy to America writing a letter back to his mother. And it's a pretty nice song, just, you know, saying how I'm gone, but I still think about you. And that even though I'm here in America now, I think about Italy every night. And that uh, I'm earning this bread, but it tastes so bitter. And that so many of us were in America, but we long for the sky of our homeland. And so I'm thinking, you know, if we could just close off this episode, that also happens to be our first celebration of Garibaldi Day. Let's all say, Obedisco! Mia cara mater, sta patrasinata, e asta lontane chi un masapa mare, come vorrei allumato io tre biancare. Come vorrei a Santino Zambugnar, ai ninna miei facita lo presepio, e a tavola mattito piatta mia, facita quando è a sera da vigilia, come si mi è zavuia, stessa curia. Ancena casta la caramest America, a noi napolitana, per noi canci che agnimmo cielo Napoli, come amare stupare.